0: Al Jazeera Podcast. Have you ever been in shackles before? I hope not, but you can probably imagine how it feels, right? I know, horrible thought. And yet, some humans put others in shackles because they look different. Or, and they wanted, of course, to accumulate wealth through exploitation. Good that those days have now gone. But gone shouldn't mean forgotten. So we decided to give you the chance to hear or maybe even feel the impact of visiting a slavery museum right here in Doha, Qatar. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. So, our very own producer, Khalid Sultan, went to a place called the Bin Jalmood House. It tells of a time when a slave trade flourished throughout the Indian Ocean, the Gulf, Europe and the US.
1: The Slavery Museum, it's basically a traditional Qatari house that used to be the home of a man named Bin Jalmood. This is where it gets interesting. The courtyard in the middle of the house used to be packed with slaves waiting to be sold by none other than Bin Jalmood himself. And frankly speaking, each time I would stop to admire what is now a beautiful sunny courtyard, I'm reminded of the many slaves that passed through here. The exhibits in the museum are a whole mix of videos, old photos and physical items, including a real pair of shackles that were used on slaves while they were being transported on ships. And I have to say, honestly, looking at those rusty shackles and knowing they're actually used on human beings was very unsettling. The entire experience as a whole was emotionally taxing, but it's important to learn from the past and to better understand where a lot of the racism in the region today stems from.
0: Unsettling. What's more alarming is that we still have modern day slavery and racism in some form or shape in our own societies, either in the West or even here in the Middle East. Let's get into this rather uneasy topic now with our guest.
2: My name is Eve Trout-Powell. I'm the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished Professor of History and Africana Studies. And I'm coming to you from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
0: Absolutely lovely to have you with us, Eve, and I can already feel this is going to be a great discussion. Let's start, as they say, charity starts at home. The Gulf was a place where slavery was rampant, wasn't it? What fueled it? Greed for money?
2: There are different systems of slavery going on in the Middle East that are not necessarily based on a capitalist model. Much of the enslavement that happened in the Middle East was domestic slavery, and here I'm including the Ottoman Empire, the Nile Valley, and also the Indian Ocean trades in slavery.
0: That's really interesting, Eva. What is the model then if it wasn't a capitalist model?
2: Some of it was military recruitment, forced recruitment, and that has a long tradition in Middle Eastern history. Much of it was domestic slavery. What I'm saying here is that it was, for the most part, not agricultural slavery, not based on a resource that would then be used in a capitalist market.
0: Which groups or demographics were targeted? Because when you talk about the global picture of slavery, traditionally you think of white people exploiting non white people.
2: Was the picture a little different in the Middle East? In most systems of Middle Eastern slavery, the slavery was multicultural and multiracial, but you certainly did have African slave trade and depending on the time and history...
0: Much more broader multicultural in the Middle East compared to the West, is that what you're saying?
2: I'm saying that it was differently racialized. And I think one of the problems in the study of slavery right now is that people often make these bifurcations that are very strong between what they see as the white enslavement of blacks in transatlantic slavery, and then a multicultural, multiracial slavery in the Middle East. Actually, you have a multicultural, multiracial slavery in the West as well. And so part of what hinders our understanding of slavery in the Middle East is that we tend to only draw on models that were written by abolition writers in the 19th century in the American South or the American North without really understanding the different ways in which the Middle East also propagated a slave trade based on different kinds of ethnic and racial identifications.
0: All right, if we fast forward to today, has this history of slavery fed into the problems of racism in the MENA region today?
2: Yes, it certainly has. I think most people in the MENA region identify slavery as something attached to people of dark skin. And that leads linguistically to certain words being used in certain parts of the Middle East that sort of connote a legacy of slavery without people really understanding what that legacy of slavery actually is.
0: When we say people of darker skin, can we break it down into demographics or groups that are targeted by this kind of racist language?
2: I would say that people with darker skin who look African, let's say in the Nile Valley, people who come from South Sudan, often Ethiopian or Eritrean people with dark skin.
0: How widespread is this problem today in the Middle East and North Africa?
2: It's pretty widespread.
0: Yannick is Turkish,
2: but in his hometown, Izmir, he's often himself taken for a refugee. He's an Afro-Turk, a descendant of African slaves brought here in the mid-19th century by the Ottoman Empire. On the streets and even in his own leather workshop, he's been called black in a derogatory manner or Arab, Turkish for Arab. It exists in modern-day Turkey, it exists in Egypt and in northern Sudan, it exists in parts of North Africa, in Morocco, Lebanon, in Israel, it's pretty much everywhere and I think it's evidenced often in employment interactions and in comedy and in television.
0: But let's talk a little bit about what some experts call modern slavery, they've coined that term, what are they referring to now?
2: It's slavery. It's like it's not a condition or a term that has left humans.
0: Well, I guess because it doesn't take the same form as traditional slavery, right? You don't go down to the market and buy and sell a slave anymore.
2: I would argue that you often, in many different economies, you do go down to a certain avenue or street or address and pick certain people to work for you for a day. This often happens with refugee laborers. And so I would say that perhaps that's not slavery, but certainly many of the practices and many of the words of slavery are still attached to the way people without certain skills are used in modern day economies.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because I was looking up some stats. The latest global estimates of modern slavery, that's published by the ILO, the International Labour Organization, the International Organization for Migration, and the International Human Rights Group, Walk Free. Now, they're talking about 50 million people living in what they call modern slavery. And they included that number, 28 million people in forced labour and 22 million people in forced marriage.
2: Those are terrifying numbers. They really are terrifying. And I guess one of the reasons I continue to worry about the idea of modern slavery, it's just it's slavery. These numbers that you just quoted to me equal, if not exceed the numbers that we have, although difficult to ascertain, the numbers that we have of the millions of people who were enslaved across the world in the 19th century. Slavery takes so many different forms and it remains a human tragedy.
0: Take us through some of the problems of migrant workers in Arab countries and in the Gulf.
2: As I hope many of your listeners know, there is a system called the kafala system, which is a system that represents the relationship between employers and employed. And many of these employed are women from parts of Africa, East Africa, the Philippines, etc., who once they arrive in certain cities in the Middle East... Their passports are taken from them and they really are forced to work at all hours according to the whims or desires of the employing family or the employing household.
0: All right, you made some good points for us to think about, but I tell you what, Eve, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In season four, we carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world, and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back everyone. We're continuing to talk about this sensitive topic. Let's talk a little bit about racism. How does it differ in the Middle East and North Africa compared to other parts of the world or compared particularly to the West?
2: I would say the lack of education about what slavery actually was.
0: Historians estimate millions of East Africans from places like Kenya, Tanzania and Mozambique were captured and sold in Zanzibar before being taken to Egypt, Morocco, Oman and other places. It also took a very long time for it to be outlawed and countries like Saudi Arabia and Yemen didn't do so until the 1970s.
2: So it is not a subject that is taught in school in Egypt, in most Egyptian schools, it is not something that is taught in most Lebanese schools, Sudanese schools. Of course, Qatar is a little different with having dedicated museum to slavery, but I would have to add that most people in the west think they know the history of slavery but don't really. What is different, markedly different, is that people are hurling epithets that actually include the word slave at people who they think look like what they imagine slaves to have looked like. And so I'm talking about the Arabic word abid, for instance, which is used as an epithet connoting a slave past in Arabic at people who are considered much darker skinned than your average Egyptian or Lebanese or Saudi, et cetera.
0: Tying that in with what you said earlier about films and culture, depictions of black people still an issue in the entertainment industry in the Arab world. White or light-skinned people caricaturing those of African descent by darkening their faces with theatrical makeup. Blackface and caricatured depictions of black people still go out on the air.
1: And in most cases, they are not even seen as offensive.
0: In the Egyptian film industry, one of the biggest in the Arab world, critics would say black people are sometimes portrayed negatively or described in a derogatory manner. How big of a problem is this?
2: a very big problem, and yes, unfortunately, in a lot of comedy in particular, and I am thinking about Egypt most notably here, there remain representations of Sudanese people or other African people as heavily black-faced using polish that is completely black, And this can be seen in modern comedies. This can be seen if you watch the very popular channel in the Arab world, Anil Cinema. You'll see a lot of films from the 50s onward to today in which people, perhaps Sudanese people, are represented as completely boot-black,
0: We had that kind of phenomenon in the West, but that was, you're talking like 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe up to the 60s, 70s. But then starting from, I guess, the 80s, there seemed to be a change in awareness about how you portray black. That awareness, that culture, has it simply not fed into the Arab film industry?
2: It's fed differently. The idea of blackface performance, it's still holding people back politically.
0: It will be an issue. It
2: would be an issue. Would that not be the case in the Middle East? I don't think this is something that would hurt people's political careers.
0: So there isn't the same level of sensitivity to it then?
2: No, I don't think there is. And making it even worse is that I don't think you see a similar representation as in characters, in movies, in comedies of dark-skinned actors that would help a great deal. It hasn't solved everything in, for instance, American media, but it does help to be able to counterbalance certain images with other more broadened, deepened, more defined characterizations.
0: To your point, there's an organization called Hudud and it works on the rights of Nubians, who are one of the indigenous communities there. And they said 51 Egyptian films that they looked at between 2007 and 2016 featured, no surprise, I guess, given what you just told us, stereotypical depictions of Africans. Yeah,
2: Africans and Caribbeans.
0: Let's widen the discussion now. The West has its own distinct history of racism and slavery. Is that a correct statement?
2: For our purposes, I will say it's a helpful statement.
0: You're being very cautious. It's like we're talking in a court.
2: I am being cautious because I always worry about the translation of slavery between the West and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I'm so cautious is because I have been working on this now for over, well, about 30 years. And in that time, a critique that I take very seriously is the critique that I'm imposing a sense as an African-American woman, that I'm imposing a sense of race on the Middle East after years of intensely studying. Arabic, intensely studying this dynamic within Egypt, in Lebanon, and in Israel, and in Turkey, I would say that racism does exist, and there are many things that are the same, that what happens in the Middle East does not come from a nostalgia for the southern plantation. It comes from a very, very different system of slavery, and yet racism, to me, still is racism
0: You really got me thinking, all right, here's another statement. Is this one correct? The slave trade, the global slave trade, exploded under European powers. True or false?
2: True. I would say it exploded in the West because it really was tied to capitalism. And I refer everyone to the work of Eric Williams and his famous book from the 1940s, Slavery and Capitalism. When you get to the Middle East, however, did European colonialism explode enslavement in the Middle East? I would argue no. I would say that because different parties in the Middle East were involved in their own colonial exploitation of African territories, most notably Egypt, which in 1820 to 1821, under the leadership of Mehmed Ali, or Muhammad Ali as he is also referred to, invaded Sudan and conquered most of the Sudan. And that became part of the Egyptian Sudan, as it was known for the rest of the 19th century until about 1885. So that was a colonization that had nothing to do with the United States. It had nothing to do with Great Britain or France. It might've had more to do with the Ottoman Empire
0: were both the same when it comes to concepts of racial and civilizational superiority as justification for slavery?
2: I would argue very much Mm. and let's remember that in the 19th century there wasn't a certain a woke movement that said no imperialism is bad. What people felt was please don't colonize my territory. This is the beginning of nationalism in the Middle East. And Mm -hmm. as in my first book, I looked at this, how Egypt was not yet a country, but Egypt was a territory, a part of the Ottoman Empire that moved deliberately to colonize Sudan so that Muhammad Ali could actually make of Egypt a regional empire.
0: Do we have the same language of racial superiority in the discourse in the Middle East? Yes, we do. And coming to today... How is social media playing out in all of this? Is unregulated content inflaming these kinds of racist concepts? I'm curious to know from your studies as well as when you look in the MENA region...
2: I rely so much on social media in order to find protests in the MENA region against racist tropes, racist memes. And so I know that there is a movement. Do you find it? You certainly do find it. But it is easier, I'm sorry to say, to Mm. find memes or discussions or chats in which racism is just repeated over and over again.
0: All right, let's try and end on a positive note. And what's been a, quite a sensitive, is a difficult discussion. Are things improving, Eve?
2: No, they are not. I really feel that one of the basics within the MENA region is to see different kinds of faces doing different kinds of work mm. so that we have perhaps news anchors who can articulate the news in FUSA every bit as well as lighter skinned. I really think that is one one important beginning, just representation and a more realistic representation of the populations represented in TV and film.
0: And stop those ads that tell you, if you use this cream and get lighter, you'll have a better career and job prospects.
2: Exactly.
0: You've hit us with some uncomfortable thoughts it's been really great talking to you thank you so much
2: thank you so much for raising these important questions
0: and thank you for our listeners for joining us this episode was produced by Khaled Sultan and Salem al sound design was by George al our recording engineer is Hamdi Aoun our engagement producer is Aya malik and our assistant engagement producer is Mulira Dosari. Our executive producer, of course, is Omar Asaleh. Ney Alvarez is the head of audio. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, is goodbye.